got Paul Ritchie on What the Funk today, coming to you live from downtown Calgary, where Paul resides. And of course, I'm Jeremy Funk, hanging out here in the confines of lovely Lafayette, Colorado. This is one that I've wanted to have for quite some time. Paul's a dynamic dude. Uh, He runs a business called Osperity. He's on the road a lot. It's almost like a ghost. He's in one place and then he disappears. I just saw him in Houston two days ago. Osperity is crushing it right now, but we'll get to that. Really, Paul wanted to give the audience a chance to, to get to know you a little bit. I've been fortunate enough to know you for the last five years. We met at a clean tech conference in Denver, where I think Osperity or Osprey Informatics at that time was just getting its footing. I want to understand you a little bit, your upbringing kind of where you went to school, how you got into oil and gas, you know, talk about how COVID maybe shifted a little bit of the landscape for prosperity as we're seeing a whole lot of interest in your solution right now. But tell us, man, who is Paul Ritchie? Well, that's uh, a long story. I'm not sure your 45 minutes is going to hold on to that. So um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I grew up a West Coast kid. I grew up in Vancouver, BC, actually, to be exact, North Delta, BC, um, spent, uh, uh, until I was seven, 16, 17 there, uh, and then decided to go play a little hockey in, in the WHL in, in Seattle. And spent, oh, no kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah. And spent, spent a couple of years playing hockey there and, and, um, I wasn't scoring, I wasn't a goal scorer and, uh, I went there as a defenseman and ended up being the guy that stood in front of the net in, in the offensive zone after about half a season. And, and you know, the reality was it was, it was time to, to grow up and, and decide what I wanted to do with my life. So you were living the dream, right? I can only imagine every Canadian kid, whether you grow up in Prince Edward Island, Vancouver, and all points in between, dreams of being the next Wayne Gretzky, right? Kids these days, maybe it's Connor McDavid or, or Sidney Crosby. But you actually had a chance to start living out that dream and played, played pretty competitive hockey. Was it hard for you to eventually kind of hang up the um, the pads and, and put down the stick and trade it in for a computer? You know what? You know, a, a little bit, a little bit. But, you know, I, I, I really... When you when you're you're a uh, you know a, a phenomenal player in bantam, and then you go and play with the boy the men, and you don't you're not that guy anymore, um, and and really was never going to be that guy, no matter how much work I put into it. Um, I didn't want to be the guy playing three minutes four minutes a game, um, yeah. and you know I made the decision for the right reasons. And was it hard? Absolutely. It's something you've done for a lot of years of your life, but it was also time to, to open a new chapter, to to look at something different. And you know what? It wasn't going to be in, in cloudy Seattle or rainy Vancouver. And, uh, you know, I packed everything I owned in my, uh, my Ford EXP and uh, <laughs> drove through the mountains and ended up in Calgary and never, uh, never went back. Never left. That was 1989. Wow. Okay. So just, so Calgary was kind of popping then. It was just after the winter Olympics. Yeah. We're in Calgary, 1988. I was about nine years old and I distinctly remember 
watching those Olympics. It was really, I was the right age for those to be the first Olympics to watch. And just remember thinking it just looked really cool seeing the mountains in the background, the the speed skating. Of course, I had a bunch of sisters. They loved the figure skating stuff, which I found really boring, but it was, it was cool. And I, and you know, I didn't get to Calgary personally till about 2010 and always in my mind viewed it as this like very international kind of cosmopolitan city. And I was really excited to see where the Olympics were. And for the most part, there's not really much around it now. You got some sort of, you know, old, decrepit, you know, <laughs> Olympics related things. But um, that must have been cool to get there just after that happened. You know, it was because it was it was a big time, obviously, for the Flames at that point. Right. Now that I look back and do the math, that, um, the Saddle Dome's really old. Um, yeah. You know, you had you still had international ski jumping events right off the Trans Canada Highway in the city of Calgary, um, and it was exciting. and And for me, it, you know, I I moved out here in August and went to uh, went to Mount Royal College at the time. Um, now I'm going to age myself because I'm going to say that uh, it only offered two year diplomas. Now oh, it's a full blown university, but. Uh, you know, did my my two years in three years and and uh, worked and worked and lived and and just decided this is where I want to be. I mean, the people are cool. The 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 city is is it just always feels young. I mean, you know, I always everybody always relates Calgary and Houston as sister cities, and I always have to correct them because clearly you've never been to Denver and. <laughs> You know, it's the same view, it's the same sandstone buildings, it's the yeah. same vibrant downtown, you know, sort of nine to five, Monday to Thursday, and then Friday it's a little later, activity and lunches and, and things like that. And, you know, the synergies between those two, Calgary and Denver, are, it, it, it's like not even changing places other than we're a little closer to the center of the mountains. That's about it. Um, and he, yeah. And, and the mountains out there, I feel like are just a little less trampled than out here. It's just a little more off the beaten path. All right. So if you go to the Rockies in Colorado, you know, it's, it's very well established. And of mm -hmm. course they are in uh, Western Alberta as well. But I think it's it's nicer out there. I think it's a little more beautiful. I mean, not to mention you've got the the green water out there, which kind of blew my mind the first time I saw some of those lakes um, heading out to Kananaskis for a conference back in 2014. Yep. It was super fun, and and I completely agree. It was it was amazing for me to go to Calgary 2010 2011 and be like oh my God, this is exactly like Denver. How did nobody tell me that Calgary is Canadian Denver? Even down to sort of the dry conditions that you have there, kind of the temperament of the people, the fact that Earl's is down there. You guys sort of had that before us and then Earl's came to to Denver yeah. and you've got all the oil people having meals there. But but I love it, man. I just feel so comfortable every time I'm in Calgary and it, it just feels like a real awesome town. I, I guess I understand the parallels with Houston, just because Houston's the epicenter for, for energy in the United States. Yeah. Calgary really is that for Canada as well. I think a challenge that Calgary has had, like, well, I guess to back it up, when I first got into oil and gas late 2007, like the Calgary market was blowing up. 
right? I mean, you had lots of companies there, lots of U.S. companies that had Canadian offices. And I feel like a lot of those have either been sold to Calgary-based companies or even just gone away entirely. But it was really a vibrant market at that point. Talk a little bit about, you know, we'll, we'll get to your career, but but some of the changes that you've seen in Calgary from sort of the initial shale boom to now here in 2023. Yeah, I think what, you know, one of the biggest ones is you're right. There was a lot, I think a lot larger American and international presence in the past. Um, but also back then there was, there was a lot of small independence. Um, and there's been, you know, a lot of consolidation over the years. Um, you have a lot of, you know, asset trading and swapping and sales and so on going on within the industry. Um, and, you know, we have, we have federal government challenges in our industry. And, you know, we've got the third or fourth largest reserve in the world in, in Alberta. Um, and you're, you're landlocked. We are landlocked and, you know, we're, we're taking a cut to distribute it through the U S. Um, we're very fortunate right now. We have a phenomenal LNG market and pipelines that are opening up to get that to, to Canadian waters. But, you know, I, I, the biggest changes really have been, there's a lot fewer small producers that were homegrown, um, and you have less less U.S. influence in the yeah. operations, um, and I don't know that one's better than the other. Um, but what we're seeing here is, you know, a lot of really strong the Arc Resources, the CNRLs, the Suncores that are, you know, taking taking the leap and gathering up these assets and really becoming world leaders, but, you know, in, in, in ARC's case, just in one country, just in Canada, but yeah. being production leaders and, and again, pros and cons to that. But I think, you know, as a province, we've got our stuff together. Um, yeah. You know, the majority of what happens in North, uh, North, yeah, I've got to do my math here, North Eastern British Columbia, you know, that's mainly Alberta companies. They just have the rights up there. Um, and then, you know, in Saskatchewan, it's a nice blend of local um, <clears throat> Canadian. And there's some U.S. operations there as well. And and Alberta and Saskatchewan get along phenomenally well. This is, you know, if it wasn't oil and gas and agriculture and, and you know, ag tech is, is growing in both these those provinces, um, it would be a different it would be a different conversation. And, you know, some of the investment that's driving the technologies is, is, is coming directly from these Canadian energy companies. And that's yeah. one thing that a lot of people don't know is they're a big part of pushing these clean technologies and operational efficiency technologies, um, both in energy, but also in, in ag. And those two industries go hand in hand in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Yeah, and we'll we'll dive into the the tech influence that that Calgary has had on the oil and gas industry because it is significant. And and even I was with um with you at Grayson Mill Energy earlier this yeah. week and those guys were were talking about how you know they would come up with some solutions down here and be like, "Man, 
we just discovered these Canadian tech companies and we hope they don't come down here because they've already got this stuff figured out. Yeah. Um, but to backtrack a little bit on you, right? So you, you decide to, to hang up the skates, you load up your car, you end up in Alberta, you finish up at Mount Royal. Did you get right into oil and gas? What was your kind of career path in the 90s and subsequently into the 2000s? Yeah, so I went to school and um, I was going to come out and get and and uh, be a stockbroker in New York, which is a big uh, career transition. Um, and then I realized that, you know, okay, so I've got a little bit of student loans here and um, yeah, that's not going to happen. So I actually, believe it or not, my first my first job was um, selling trade show exhibits. Oh, really? The physical graphics and all that. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm, I misspoke. That wasn't my first job. My first job was a marketing assistant at a company selling trade show displays. Okay. And, you know, the, the sales guys were driving BMWs and, you know, had the nice suits and, and all that. So I went to the owner of the company and said, I want to be... I want to get out of that. You know, marketing's cool. That's what I went to school for. But uh, I want to get into sales. He goes, hey, no problem. I said, so what do I get paid? He says, whatever you sell. He says, you know, you eat <laughs> And I went, hmm, okay. So can you do advances? Yep, but only X number of dollars a paycheck. Then you wow. pay it back. I'm like, okay, let's go. And I said, all right, where do I start? And he handed me the yellow pages. And he said, here you go. <laughs> And, you know, that really did it. Um, it, 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 it excited me every day. Um, I ended up, I was there for 10 years. Uh, I ended up being vice president of Western Canada, uh, managing basically from Winnipeg, Manitoba to Victoria, British Columbia with teams all across there. Um, and then I just, uh, decided to, to hang that up. Um, there, obviously I had over, eight, nine, 10 years, I gained a lot of contacts in here and, and I wanted to get into technology. Um, so I did and uh, actually ended up starting with uh, Reuters um, and selling their um, offerings to the energy sector in North America, sort of ran that practice. Mm -hmm. And that led one thing to another. And then I was, you know, in between there, I had a couple of my own uh, companies um, that I exited and um, just, you know, just kept along the tech tech track. So, you know, it's funny. I always used to tell my kids, <laughs> had one one daughter that was at one point in her teen years an environmentalist, but then she realized she lived in Calgary and that didn't work. <laughs> but, um, you know, it didn't matter what you did in, in, in Alberta, you were directly tied to it. I mean, that was what put food on your table was the energy sector, right? Yeah. Um, and when I got into the tech side of the energy sector, it opened up a lot of, uh, opened my eyes a lot and, and just sort of kept going down that path. And, and you know, once I developed the, the, the portion at Reuters, it was time to leave and, and move on to building. I like building. And yeah. And that's, you know, leads up to a few things in between in, in the tech world. Um, I was part of a, a team at a company called Avoco, which was one of the first SaaS 
uh, based construction platforms here based out of Calgary. Um, we dealt with, you know, the Walmarts, the Benihana's, the Lowe's, the Home Depot's mm. uh, in the U.S. And we were this company of 50 people in Calgary that didn't have a client in Canada. And, you know, again, traveling lots. And, yep. you know, that's that's the exciting part is is the building. And, you know, when I came here, it was commercialization time. And boom, there you go. You're right back at it again. So, you know, that that's the path in, in a short term. I mean, the blood, sweat and tears in between. Everybody knows it. He's been on the path. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know, if it's exciting and it's it's moving forward, you know, I really want to be a part of building that. And and that's that's what we're doing here. And and that's what makes it fun every day. You know, this makes a lot of sense to me, you know, getting to know you better. We've known each other for five years, um, more socially and and then more recently business wise. And, and I'm with you. Like that's part of my mindset too, is I like to build stuff. I like to take an idea or a concept and improve upon it, make things affordable for the buyer and then create value coming out of it. And I've seen you do that with, with Austerity. So this company, Osperity, it was Osprey Informatics, right? You guys had a real strong foothold for intelligent video monitoring in the mid-2010s, late-2010s, primarily focused in Canada. Yep. And then from my, from my viewpoint, you guys made a couple of changes to the organization. I think the founders kind of left. You had a new group come in took on some investment, bought out the investors. I'm sure a lot of things happened in between. And then we re-engaged toward the end of last year. And it really sounds like you guys have diversified a lot of your revenue to be US centric, as opposed to just really kind of being a Calgary monitoring system with a, a strong platform that can show you these very cold, very remote locations in Canada to really kind of spreading across the whole ecosystem and working here in the US, whether it's extremely hot conditions, extremely cold conditions. But what I'm curious about, because I have a theory, that COVID actually was one of the best things to happen for your business. Because this is an industry where people have been very manual in their efforts. The same pumper, the same lease operator, the same service resource goes on the same route every single day. They go to the same wells, they check out the same things. And then all of a sudden, we hit this crazy time where you can't always be around people, right? We got negative oil prices. Some of these assets are extremely remote. We need more eyes on those that are not just eyes of humans. So then I think, at least my theory, is that COVID brought an eye on what you guys can do. It really helped sort of streamline that revenue. Now, I'm sure you had some supply chain challenges like everybody else did during the COVID time period. But but talk about sort of the shift from 2019 into 2020 and now here in 2023. And, and what did sort of this change to more of remote infrastructure as it relates to work affect Osprey Informatics? Yeah, so I think immediately when COVID hit, what we saw was... Um, a massive increase in the number of users um, that were being added to our platform by all our clients, mm. number one. And then when you started digging deeper, uh, the level at which these users were at, now you have SVPs looking at it where generally you have GMs, ops, operators, you know, mid-level directors that are a part of this. 
um, doing it, you know, really using our platform. But I think what, what really propelled our technology was the whole idea of, you know, yeah, it's great that, we, that Austerity can help us manage our sites by exception. Now they didn't have an option, right? Ah. It was, it was, oh, well, you know, we can't go here. We can't go there. Contractors can't go here. You know, now we actually need this tool. Yeah. And, you know, what it did for us was actually, it really, so, you know, as, as, a, as a computer vision, industrial computer vision company delivering this, this information, it actually steered us a little bit away from the whole computer vision, you know, same library, same training was still going on, but we said, hey, there's other things we need to do with this equipment out there. Um, and number one was we need to create we need to create an inspections module. The yeah. first thing, the last thing these guys want is one, they've got less staff, two, they can't always go to these sites anymore, is let's enable autonomous remote inspections. In some cases, it meant adding a little more hardware or more cameras, um, or it involved just refocusing and, and setting different presets on the pan tilt zoom cameras to actually deliver that to them. You know, and now we have we have one client that we deliver over ten thousand images a day to, simply in a multitude of inspection reports. Hmm. So that was sort of one thing that that changed and drove drove us through uh, COVID. The other was obviously companies that were already clients going, ooh, now we got to put it here and here. And of course, there comes the supply chain challenges, um, which which affected, but didn't, didn't, didn't hurt. Everybody was in the same boat, right? Um, and then it was, you know, what other, okay, so now you have a sensor go off that says X is leaking. Right. So what's the first thing every operator does either just out of habit or is instructed to do? Get the hell out to site and find out what's going on. Yeah. Or shut it down and get it fixed. So we said, well, there's lots of things that camera can't decipher through our technology. So why don't we connect into those and then deliver them a video or photographs of that geolocated sensor and say, here's what's happening so after they get their SCADA or process control alarm, now they're actually getting an image a minute or two later that says, here's what just happened or is happening. Um, and it enables them to send the right people out there or shut it down or go, oh, geez, this happens every six weeks for about 10 minutes, it'll go away. Um, so it, it, it didn't slow our path down on the computer vision side, but it said, wow, there's these other things we can do. And then let's fast forward to today with everything that happened during COVID. Um, we have a, a, a operators and field personnel in the energy industry now that are actually very tech savvy and very yeah. tech forward. Um, and they want this. They want to do their job on an iPad. You know, they, 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 they bring ideas to us as opposed to, you're putting a camera out here, you know, why? You know, the old grumpy guy. I mean, we've had our contractors get turned away at sites. You're not putting a camera out here. Well, the vice president says we are, 
right? <laughs> and that, that sort of has gone by, really gone by the wayside, um, you know, and, and then it was, okay, well, we, we, we sort of as a software, you know, connected well with two or three different brands of cameras. It was, hey, look at all these cameras out here. Now we've got to be able to, you know, be, you know, far more uh, accepting of other data streams and that sort of industrial IP camera data set and be able to pull those in. So you want our system? Here's our edge device, plug it in, let's go. Um, yeah. And that's changed it too, because you know you don't necessarily have the operational, or sorry, the CapEx budgets that companies had in the past. And with a SaaS model, you're rolling in a, uh, an operational expense, right? It's not, it's not cash out today for something that's gonna happen in two years from now. Yep. Yeah, you, I mean, you said a lot of really good stuff there. And I think the one thing I want to come back to is when I first met you in 2018 and you explained to me what what was then Osprey Informatics and, and became Osperity, what you guys did, candidly, it struck me as a nice to have. And just the way the universe has shifted in that time, now it's very much a mission critical application. We need yeah. to have eyes on our assets of all time, not just from an observation and um, inspection standpoint, but from a safety standpoint too. Yep. Like yep. full disclosure, Osperity is a client of Funk Futures. And I'm not supposed to pick favorites, but one of my favorites in part because you guys work just as well in high traffic areas as you do in places where it's 40 below that nobody wants to go to. The application of what you have is just as important if people are going to the site and stealing copper wires or if it's somewhere that's so far out there that it's physically hard to get a truck on site, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of cool to see that shift take place. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you've seen and observed from a crime standpoint and how you can help from really a security perspective as well. Yeah, I think, you know, right right now, the last four years have been incredible. I mean, you know, I go back to when I first started with the company and the funniest story that kept coming up was crackhead stealing the sight glasses to smoke crack out of um, (laughs) to... You know, and, th- and that was, that was a big thing. And it was like, oh, wow, what am I getting into here? Um, and now, I mean, we're, we're seeing and, and guys tie chains to live wire poles, three trucks at a time, three poles at a time and pull them down and start fires. Like the end of the day, it's copper. Um, yeah. And they're all nice trucks, so I don't know why they're stealing copper unless they're trying to make the truck payment. But um, it's it's just crazy. Like, you know, they're not going in and stealing the monitor out of the shack. They're cutting live cable trays. They're they're pulling down poles. They're starting fires in the the in in the way they're doing it. And you know, for the for the client to know exactly what's happening, getting alerted to it, and then being able to watch it live. One, they're they're telling their people that, you know, it's not safe to go out there. The police are on their way. EMS is on their way. Fire is on their way because all these things are happening. Um, it enables them to shut down remotely if they need to. Um, and we're not talking just stealing out of little sites now. We're talking, you know, unmanned terminals. Um, we're talking, 
you know, batter, unmanned batteries and places like that where, you know, that's critical infrastructure that's coming down. You know, the flip side is as many terrible accidents, there's some hell of a funny stories out there that we see, you know, Christmas morning, two kids in a Honda Civic dragging a whole spool of copper out of a site only to have the police, you know, only to have the police follow them, the track to their parents' Quonset that this has caused in the snow. Um, just, you know, getting stuck and, and never getting their job done. And, and it's, it's as much as that security, it's truly safety as well for the employees yeah. and for the community. Even though these are remote, people still have land out there and houses out there um, in the remote areas of, of the energy industry. There's still sure. people live out there. Uh, and in many cases, you know, on the bigger sites, these guys are camp or are, are sleeping in a in a in a employee lodge or an employee, yeah. you know, trailer out there, um, and it, it just ties into so much. Um, and from from incidents, I mean, catching explosions, catching fires, um, watching different things occur that have environmental impacts that enable a faster response. You know, maybe it's 72 hours before somebody's going to be out or has to go out there or is going to be out there for them to know within minutes uh, makes a big difference on uh, the mitigation plan that's going to be imposed uh, yep. on them. So it's, well, yeah, it's uh, lots out there. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's, let's uh, shift a little bit to ESG because, yep. you know, all, on your website, that was definitely not something that was there before ESG became a real hot topic. But I think inherently you guys were doing ESG-related functions. Can you talk about how Asperity is a strategic application for companies that are leaning into their ESG and carbon-related footprint? Yeah, so I like to say we were a clean tech company before that was a term. Mm -hmm. um, and I only say that because we're not doing anything different we just have something different to attach to it, and that's ESG. Um, you know, 90% of what we do reduces truck rolls, which increases yeah. safety, which reduces carbon, which lowers cost to, to operations. Yeah. Um, you know, we have the ability through our partner um, with Viper Imaging to uh, uh, detect and quantify uh, methane. Um, we work with... Uh, different thermal cameras around activity around flare stacks. Uh, I know uh, more so in the States, various States have some very specific rules about wind direction, about smoke, Absolutely. about flare height, you know, about amount of time flaring. Um, and we can provide that data, you know, that that's very accurate through thermal cameras to it's not blowing the right direction. This is happening. Um, but you know, the biggest, one of the biggest things, um, is there's a big social effect of seeing something with a camera on it, um, today more than there was 10 years ago. And that's just Definitely. someone is watching it. I mean, who doesn't have a doorbell camera now? Right. Yeah, I got one. <laughs> it's, it's. It's, I've got one, but I wouldn't know if someone was there because my kids are, 
my neighbor's kids are always out front playing street hockey and it just dings the whole time. (laughs) Um, you know, but that's, that's it. ESG, everybody just immediately go, the public goes to environment, but the governance perspective, our inspections are being submitted visual inspections as most of the regulators call for are generally an operator in his truck driving around ticking the boxes that yes this has been done this is good this is good this is good we're actually delivering to the client a visual with third-party auditable images of what exactly is there you know and there's a couple regulators in the u.s that are like hey, this is absolutely amazing. Wow, who's doing this? This is great. Well, these guys are doing it. And then you call them up and go, all right, well, endorse us. They're like, no, <laughs> no, you know, we don't endorse, we don't endorse technologies. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, we tell the story. Yeah. But, you know, there, there is, there, there's so much about what we do that we've been doing for a long time until somebody finally come out and said, this stuff is important. We're actually going to define it. This is what ESG is. And then it was like, oh, shit, we've been a clean tech company for five years, six years. What's going on here? Um, <laughs> wait, wait a second. We're this year. We're ESG. This yeah, whole ESG exactly. thing. I, now you're telling me this matters and you're going to save money and you got this whole IRA and your carbon footprint yeah. matters. Hey, wait a second. We're here. Yeah, we're here. yeah exactly. So, I want to I want to ask you something kind of put you on the spot with this. There's lots of camera providers out there. Some of them are really cheap. Like there's nothing stopping a company from putting a very low cost camera, a hunting camera or something of the sort, a ring camera, right? Out there on a site and and have that data just feed back to them. What are the differentiators? Like, why would somebody make a, I guess what I would consider a more substantial investment for a product like Osperity, as opposed to leaving like, you know, using just some sort of off the shelf video camera? Yeah. So first off, we're a software company. Okay. Um, so we're, we're, as you know, Jeremy, um, we're, we're, <laughs> you know, from a camera perspective, you're right. All those, all those things work. We have tried them. We have tried the trail cams. We have tried the lower cost cameras. Let's look at the environment we're putting cameras in. We don't put cameras inside build, in, inside uh, commercial buildings or residential buildings or parking lots or parkades where they're protected from the elements. We're yeah. putting cameras and literally in some of the harshest working conditions in North America, whether it's in New Mexico in the Permian or whether it's in you know, uh, the Northwest Territories or Yukon in the oil and gas industry, right? And the old adage, garbage in, garbage out. So you put that out there, trail cams run on batteries. They have this little solar panel. They have a little LTE modem in there. Um, What's the point of having a camera that you got to replace the batteries every weekend? You're still going out to site. we can run ours off solar, absolutely, but we're going to have two to four panels and four to eight batteries out there to give you a 24-7, 365, right? Yeah. Um, and it's also using and focusing on industrial IP cameras, the bigger manufacturers, 
um, the accesses, the, the Vigilons, the Pelco, those type of cameras, um, one, they're far more hardened for the environment. Um, you're in the extreme weather. Uh, you're in extreme conditions with hydrocarbons floating around. Doesn't matter where you are, it's going to be there. Um, and you're around rough people, um, <laughs> you know, working and equipment. So, you know, the, the, the differentiation is you can put that out there, but you're not going to get the results. And for our analytics to work and be accurate and not send you the wonderful children that live next door that play street hockey, that I may join them some days, telling me that someone's at my door because the ball came into our yard. Right. Right. Um, we're, we're, we cut that noise out because the data we're getting from the camera, cameras are sensored, um, you know, outside of giving us the feed. That's all it's doing. We're, we're analyzing that feed. You need yeah. a crisp, clear feed. You need a reliable feed and you need a quick feed. You need it processed quickly. Right. We all know when you watch a live sporting event, it's not live. Right. Well, it's no different than a camera at a remote site hundred miles northeast of Edmonton. Um, it's not live, but it's live, you know, and we need sure. that fast. We need that fast. We need when when a client wants to move the camera, you know, on a pan tilt zoom camera from our site, we need that camera to move tomorrow, like not tomorrow, but as they press go. So yep. you need a camera in the northern conditions with a heated gearbox. So when it's minus mm. 40, that sucker's going to move on command. So, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of camera systems from our software's perspective. And, and we're not talking tens of thousands of dollars for these cameras that, that we recommend. In many cases, you and I were just in a meeting together, Jeremy, and they have the exact cameras that we use. You know, yeah, right, we right. recommend sitting on sites right now saying, yeah, we can't access them. Well, you can't because they they don't have a means. So we can give them that means, they can view them locally, we can give them that means and then add a massive layer of analytics onto that. Just by yeah, putting I mean, there. Makes perfect sense to me. And the, just the whole concept of artificial intelligence has been more established now, right? I mean, something yeah. like chat GPT wasn't a thing just a few years ago. So I, I think the market continues to come in your direction. And I say this for most companies that are in clean tech, you are probably just a little bit early for the market really caring and embracing this when you guys initially had this concept. And now it's firmly coming in your direction and people are buying it. And there's just a general significant amount of interest, whether it's a large scale operator, a midsize pipeline company, a construction firm that's remote or a company that works in a big city. It just yeah. makes sense that you'd want to have intelligent video monitoring, but I appreciate you diving into that. Got a few more minutes here. I want to play a quick lightning round with a couple of questions for you. Put you right firmly on the hot seat. Okay. Let's go with, I see you got a hockey player behind you right there in the, in the picture. Who is your yep. favorite hockey player of all time? Bobby Orr. That's my guy. There you go. I wore Legend. number four. My whole hockey playing time from when I was probably five years old till I, till I hung them up. Amazing. Was, I mean, uh, you, 
in Boston, he's up there with uh, Ted Williams, Larry Bird, Tom Brady, you know, you yeah. name it. That he's he's on the uh the pantheon of greatness. That's a good answer. Yeah. The greatest hockey team of all time for an individual season. Oh. Well, I hate to say it being in Calgary, but I I think Edmonton Oilers may have had a couple of the greatest hockey teams ever. Um, we'll, we'll, you know, and I actually hate to say it right now, they're almost borderline getting that way again. Um, uh -oh. But, 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 um, I, you know what I, I do have to say? I mean, that's a tough one in our era. I mean, Detroit had some phenomenal teams. They really did. Yeah. In, in the years, you know, we can even go back and say, you know, the LA Kings there for a couple stretches under Sutter had some phenomenal teams too um, outside of the Gretzky LA days. So, you know, it's really tough. I can't go back in history. I'm sure there's, you know, talk of, of phenomenal Bruins teams way back in the day before you and sure. I were around, but, you know, I think that's probably it, but you know, you, I'll let you ask your next question because I probably know what it is, but go ahead. <laughs> Who wins the cup this year? Boston or Edmonton. Wow. That would be a fun series. I mean, I'm personally hoping that, you know, the Bruins are my team and then the Avs are my Western conference team. So if there's any chance that last year's champs and this year's hopeful champs can meet up, I'd love to get to a game in, in Denver. Don't even get me started on Celtics and Nuggets. There's a chance of that too. Yeesh. Well, you know, it's interesting that the Avs thing, you know, they've had a lot of injuries this year and let's hope they can stay healthy. I mean, there was a time this year when McKinnon and McCarr were out yeah. for a stretch, right? And now everybody's back, and and hopefully they're healthy. Would I love nothing more than the Abs to to crush you know the Oilers in a series? <laughs> Absolutely, but I don't know. Like some of these sneaky acquisitions the Oilers made in the off season, or sorry, in the just at the trading deadline. Yeah, it, it's it's they're scary, but. The one thing that the Avs have over the Oilers is goaltending. Yeah. No, they, goaltending I, I yeah. You know, and, and for all my American listeners out there, which is probably the large majority of the people, no better way to endear yourself to a Canadian than learning just a little bit about hockey. See, I was fortunate enough growing up in uh, New England back when um, the, not only were the Bruins there, but the Whalers were there in Connecticut too. So there were two teams yep. within – and if you include the Canadians, which was three hours north, from, from three hours of my house in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire, there were three professional hockey teams. And they all played each other a lot. So I would get the French feed from the, the Habs games. I get the Boston feed from the Bruins. Every once in a while, I even get Whalers feeds. So it was really kind of a cool time for me to grow up. And of course, you know, Cam Neely and uh, the great yeah. Ray Bork. But uh, it's a great sport, and I was never a great enough skater to play. I played basketball in the in the winter season, but it's just an awesome sport. And as far as going live, like it's as fun as it gets, man. There's no bad seat in the stadium. Unlike basketball, you really kind of have to sit close, I think, to get the full understanding of how athletic these dudes are. Whereas in hockey, it's just you just get a different view of the game. It's not like a worse seat if you're up top. You see more of the ice. I've sat everywhere from right on the penalty box to the last seat in the back and had a similarly awesome experience. Uh, final question on the hot seat for you, Paul. You are a traveling man. 
You told mm-hmm. me just earlier this week, you spend about 50% of your time on the road. And even when you've gotten into relationships with, with women, you said, Hey, this is part of what I do. I'm a, I'm a traveling sales guy. I'm going to be on the road half the time. What's your favorite city to travel to? Boy, I don't know. I would say there's probably two. One, one how can it not be Nashville? Um, yeah, fun town. It, it's a great city. Um, but just a, a city to go and want to stay, I'm going to say San Diego. Oh, what a town, man. I mean, you know, I'm going to throw my Canadian out here, but, you know, it's 22 to 24 degrees Celsius. Any time of the year you go there and you might catch a, you know, you're, you're guaranteed to just have a decent time and, you know, hang out in Coronado and, and, and chill and watch the Navy SEALs work hard while you drink beer. And, and it's uh, it's pretty, pretty cool place. Yes, indeed. Well, I think we had some technical difficulties there. We'll wrap this up right here. Paul Ritchie, Osperity, thank you, my man, for coming on. And uh, you can find Paul on LinkedIn, Osperity.com, O-S-P-E-R-I-T-Y.com. Thank you.